You may be seated. Welcome. It's great to see you. And uh, I don't know about you, but I feel like I just did church. I love our worship team. You know what I love about our worship team? They're here to worship. That's it. They have no agenda. They're just here to worship. And that should be us when we walk into these doors, just to worship. Not just on Sundays, though. That should be the life that we live. That should be the heart that we have. All right. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles, if you would, and find your way to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, as we get into this very familiar passage that uh, I think when we really recognize what uh, the Lord is trying to say to us, it will rock you. John chapter 14. The message is titled, The Comfort of Christ. Now, there are times when we just need to be comforted. We need to be encouraged. We need to be consoled. In fact, if you look back over this last year, certainly this would be a year in which we need comfort. I mean, when you think on the pandemic, the social upheaval, the political unrest, the job losses, the sicknesses, the, just the general heartaches that people have gone through, you realize there's a lot of people that need hope and need peace and need comfort. Anyone here use a little comfort? So what does comfort mean? Well, it really means to come alongside, to reassure, to encourage, to lift up. In fact, we know from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, that our God is the God of all comfort. And it says that God can comfort us in all of our afflictions. Let me ask you, do you go to God for your comfort? There are times we need to be comforted. In fact, you get to John chapter 14, and it was clear that the disciples needed to be comforted. Why? Well, first of all, Jesus declares to them that one of them would betray him. And then he says he's going to go away, and they can't go with him yet. And then he looks at Peter, and he says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And he's already told them that he's going to go, that he's, he's going to be arrested, that he's going to be crucified, and he's going to die. Jesus is probably now looking at his disciples and he sees something in their faces. No wonder he says in John chapter 14, verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Why would he say that? Because he looked deeply into their souls and he saw how troubled they were. Jesus was getting ready to face his greatest trial. Yet he took this moment to encourage his disciples, to comfort his followers. Big idea of the message today, and I'll put it on the screen, is this. In your times of greatest need, look to Christ for comfort. You know, that can almost be just a throwaway statement. Yeah, of course I'm going to look to Christ for my comfort. But do you really? Do you really look to Christ for your comfort? Or do you look in all the wrong places for comfort? 
Jesus takes time in this moment to help those that are hurting, to comfort those that are in a crisis, to encourage those who need endurance. He is the tonic for those who are troubled. You go to him. So I want to look at why we can look to Christ for comfort. And he tells us in this passage why we look to Christ for comfort. First of all, he's trustworthy. He's trustworthy. Look at verse 1. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. Now, Jesus, fully man and fully God, he knew the weight of being troubled. In fact, in, in chapter 12, verse 27, he says, now my soul is troubled. Their faith was getting ready to be tested. Jesus, his soul was troubled. And he looks at them and he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus' desire was to strengthen them, to encourage them, to lift them up in this moment of trial. So what does the word troubled mean? It's an, actually, it's a pretty interesting word. It's, a, it's acute emotional distress. It's a word for turbulence or to agitate. Think of a of a pool being agitated by an earthquake. You ever seen one of those videos where there's an earthquake in California? That's why many of us don't live in California. It's like, who would want the earthquakes? But you see when there's an earthquake, you see how that pool is back and forth being agitated. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. So the way to calm a troubled heart is this. He says, believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, there's a lot written on this believe in God, believe also in me. Are they in the imperative? Are they in the indicative? Is one in the imperative? Is the next one in the indicative? I believe it's in that moment Jesus is in the indicative saying, believe in God. Believe also in me. He's not necessarily saying, you believe in God. Believe also in me. He's, he's putting their focus where it needs to be. You need to believe in God in this moment. This is a time where if you want to solve the problem of your troubled heart, put your faith and trust in Jesus. Believe in him. Now that word believe, it means to have confidence in. It means to trust in. Jesus is saying with all you're going through, trust in God. Trust in me. We sang about the promises of God a minute ago. There's some areas in which we need to trust. First of all, trust his promises. In fact, Romans 4.21 says this. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Listen, God gives us promises and God keeps his promises. That's why I love reading the whole counsel of God. Because you see God making promises and then keeping those promises. I mean, he gave us a promise of a Messiah to come. Did he keep that promise? Absolutely. In Jesus Christ. We have confidence in God. And so we can trust in his promises. But not just trust in his promises. But trust in his power. Trust in his power. In fact, Ephesians 3.20 says this. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think. According to the power that is work at work in where? In us. In Christ, we have a new source of power, the Holy Spirit. 
He's at work in us. In fact, over these next weeks, we're going to be talking a lot about the Holy Spirit because Jesus talks a lot about the Holy Spirit. And so since Jesus is going to talk about the, a lot about the Holy Spirit, we're going to talk a lot about the Holy Spirit. But not only trust in his promises and trust in his power, but trust in his plans because his plans are perfect. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says that his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts greater than our thoughts. Listen, we can, we can look to Christ for comfort because he is trustworthy. And so often our turmoil is a, is a result of not trusting in God, of not looking to God. We look for comfort in all the wrong places. If we truly want to be comforted. Now, for the disciples... They had seen the miracles of Jesus. They've just spent three years with him. So certainly, they had reason to trust in him. But what about us? We haven't spent the last three years literally walking with the incarnate Jesus. But the reality is, we're now living on the other side of the resurrection. We have their eyewitness accounts. We've seen the changed lives. We actually have the Holy Spirit in us. Yeah, but I'm not seeing any miracles. Well, if you're looking at me right now, you're seeing a miracle. I'm a miracle of God. The fact that I got saved 23 years ago, to, to most of my friends from college and high school, they would tell you it's a miracle. And, and, and the reality is anybody that has been saved by the grace of God is a miracle. Because there's nothing we can do to merit eternal life other than put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Listen, you can look to Christ for comfort because he's trustworthy. But not only that, you can look to Christ for comfort because he has a place for you. Because he has a place for you. Look at verse 2. In my father's house are many rooms. He has a place for you. Now, the word father is really key to chapter 14. We see that word used 22 different times. In fact, in the first 11 verses, it's used 11 different times. Now, when he says father's house, what does he mean? What is he talking about? He's talking of heaven. He's speaking of a believer's home. In fact, Philippians 3.20 says, but our citizenship is in where? Heaven. First Peter chapter 2 talks about the fact that we are just sojourners passing through. Our citizenship is in heaven. I'll never forget when Pam and I got saved, one of the members of our church back in Dallas was a guy named Zig Ziglar. You ever hear of him? We got saved in 1998. Zig from Mississippi, Yazoo, Mississippi. And he talked like he was from Yazoo, Mississippi. But in 1995, his daughter, Susan, died. And I remember he would talk about Susan's homegoing. And as a new believer, I was struck by that. Susan was home. And he spoke that with a lot of confidence and a lot of comfort and a lot of joy. Now, there was certainly pain. Gene and, and Zig had lost their daughter, and there was a lot of pain in that, but there was, there was so much comfort in knowing that their daughter was home. In fact, he wrote a, 
he, he wrote a book called The Confessions of a Grieving Christian, which, you know, if you've ever gone through grieving, it's a, it's a great book of, of encouragement. But notice what he says here. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. Some Bibles translate that many mansions. Some, some uh, say it's the, my father's dwelling place. The fact is, he has a place for us. It's where the Father is. Now, in, in 1336, if you just look up, he says, where I'm going, Jesus says, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. This is in comfort. He's trying to encourage them. I'm going away, but I'm going to return for you. But in my Father's house, there's a place for you. It's a place for all believers. See, in a matter of hours, they would all be scattered because the shepherd would have been struck. It would have been a troubling time, and he's trying to let them know, don't let the sorrow or the shame or fear cause turmoil in your soul. Why? Because your father has a place for you, and you'll be there. Let that truth comfort you. See, so often we get so consumed with what's going on here on earth that we don't look to our heavenly home. You can look to Christ for comfort because he's trustworthy, because he has a place for you. But third, because he has made preparation for you. He has made preparation for you. Look at verse 2 again. He says, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself and where I am, you may be also. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. I'm going on ahead. In fact, in Scripture, that was, a pretty, that was pretty typical. You would see that. In fact, I was just reading in Numbers this week, and in Numbers chapter 10, verse 33, we see how when the nation of Israel would get up, they would send the ark out ahead, which is the presence of God. It would be three days ahead of them. We see in, in Luke chapter 22 where, where Jesus sends John and, and uh, Peter uh, ahead to prepare for the Passover. Who came to prepare the way for Jesus? John the Baptist. And so Jesus says, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. Now, what does he mean by that? Is it kind of like an Airbnb? I'm going to make the bed. going to cut some fresh flowers. going to press the curtains. Well, that would be negative, Ghost Rider. That's not what he's talking about. What's not prepared? What's not prepared is the way into heaven. The way into heaven had not yet been prepared. The fact is we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because we have sinned, and because God is holy and righteous, God cannot allow sin into his presence. So there's something that must take place so that we now can have a way into heaven. There must be a sacrifice. A sacrifice for sin. Jesus came to be that sacrifice once and for all. He is the spotless, sinless Passover lamb who would go to the cross in our place. When Jesus says here that I go prepare a place for you, 
What he is saying is your sin has not yet been atoned for. God's wrath against sin has not yet been satisfied. That's why I came. I came to be the substitute in your place, to take on your sin, to die the death you deserve, to satisfy God's requirements for justice. He's saying, I am the good shepherd and I lay my life down for the sheep. I go to prepare a place for you. I am the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. I will be pierced for your transgression. I will be crushed for your iniquities. I, on me, will be the chastisement that brings you peace. Uh, it is by my wounds that you will be healed. I'm going to the cross, and on the third day, I will be raised. I am going to prepare a place for you. That's awesome. Because we can't prepare our own way. Without Christ, there is no way. He's saying, I will remove every obstacle to be able to enter into the presence of God. I will purchase your pardon. I will do all that needs to be done for you to have eternal life in heaven. You just need to believe in me. To put your faith and your trust in me. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. Listen to what John Piper says about this verse. He's saying, I am your room in my father's house. And I am not yet prepared to receive you there. I must die. I must rise. I must be glorified. I must intercede for you. And when I have done that, then I will be ready. I will come and take you to myself. It's an amazing thing to think about. In the eternity past, this was God's plan for us. Listen, you can look to Christ for comfort because he's trustworthy. He has a place for you. He has made preparation for you. But third or fourth, he will return for you. He will return for you. Look again at verse 3, and he says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. See, Jesus had to go so he could return. Jesus is going to one day return for his bride. We, as the church, are the bride of Christ. And Jesus, the groom, will come for his bride so he looks at his disciples and he tells them in a sense, as John Piper just said, I must die, then be raised, then be glorified and intercede for you. But then I will return to take you where? Notice what it says. I will come again and will take you to myself. So what we see here is a shift in the text from a place to a person. What's the most important thing? To be in a place or to be with a person? This is a church building. Great. But what do we desire? We desire the presence of Christ here. It's the same thing in heaven. I don't want to just go to a place. I want to be in the presence of the Almighty, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He says, I will take you to myself. That's so important. That's the essence of heaven. Jesus is there. His presence is there. He will be our dwelling place in eternity. 
What you see here is the promise of his second coming. Jesus is coming again. He came first as a suffering servant, but he's coming back as a conquering king. And he will take all of his church to himself. But that begs a question. Are you ready? If Jesus were to return today, would you be ready? Well, how do you get ready? There's only one way. It's to turn away from your sin. That's called repentance. You're going one way. You're going towards sin and self and turn towards Jesus Christ. You make a 180. And now all of a sudden you're going towards the Lord. You turn from your sins and you turn to Jesus. You put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If he were to return today, would you be ready? Because you've confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That is the only way to be saved. And if Jesus were to return today and it says he's going to come in the twinkling of an eye, listen for the trumpet sound because it'll come, 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says. And when you hear that, you better be ready. Now, that's not me trying to scare anybody. But hopefully it'll wake up some people. If you've been waiting and holding back and say, well, when I'm ready. Ready? Star Wars, remember that? Jaja Binks? Don't know where that came from. One thing, yes. We have a Star Wars fan. One thing you can't do in heaven. In fact, there's a guy named Mark Cahill that wrote a book. One thing you can't do in heaven. There's really two things you can't do in heaven. You can't share Christ with somebody in heaven. And you can't, you can't receive for the first time Christ in heaven. You must do that here on earth. One thing you can't do in heaven. Listen, when Jesus returns, it'll be like that. Will you be ready? Jesus says, I am returning again. We can, listen, we can go to Christ for comfort because he's returning for us. But here's the fifth thing we learn. He is the way to God. He is the way to God. Now, look at verse 4. Jesus says, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas looks up and said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? That one little question became the forerunner from one of the greatest verses in the Bible. One of the most compelling text in the Bible. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Now Thomas is always the skeptic. He and the rest don't really fully grasp what Jesus is saying. It's kind of like Thomas is from Missouri. He says, show me, Lord. And so Thomas' question it leads to one of Jesus' most controversial but most important statements. In fact, this is the sixth of the seven I am statements. The, the seven I am statements where Jesus says, uh, ergo emi, which, which means I am. Which goes back to when Moses, when Moses asked God, you know, who should I say that sent me? And he says, you say that I am sent you. He was declaring God has sent you. And Jesus is declaring that he is God. But notice here. 
He doesn't say that I am a truth, but he says, I am the truth. In fact, when you look at the other statements, the I am statements, he doesn't say, I am a bread of life, or I am a light of the world, or I am a door, or I am a good shepherd, or I am a resurrection life. He says, I am definite article. I am the door. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. This destroys syncretism. Syncretism is trying to take two completely opposed concepts and trying to bring them together. Like it, it opposes a universalism saying that there's a lot of ways to get to heaven. No, there's a lot of ways to get to Jesus, but there's only one way to heaven and that is through Jesus. A lot of us, we come to Jesus in a lot of different ways. For me, it was January 11th, 1998, on my knees, just Pam confronting me with my sin. And yet Pam had been being drawn for months. Very different. Jesus says there's only one way. No one comes to the Father except by me. Now, you deny that, you deny Jesus. You deny Jesus, you deny the Father. There are many ways to Jesus, but only one way to God. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is no other way. Christianity is a person. It's belief and faith in a person, the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't point us to a way or a uh, um, a truth or a, a life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he is, and it's been a consistent message throughout Scripture. There's only one way to God. In fact, Acts 4.12 says this. And there is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In fact, Jesus said in John 10, uh, John 10 9, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. He says, I am the door. Look at 1 Timothy 2.5. He says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. There's only one way into heaven. Listen, we can be comforted by the fact that we don't have to wonder, how do I get to heaven? It's through Jesus. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Now, when he says, I am the way, it's really, I am the way of reconciliation. Let's just go back to that. I've got a slide here. It says, when he says, I am the way, it's, it's the way of reconciliation. Jesus is the one that reconciles us to God. We are separated from God. But he reconciles us. When he says, I am the way, it's the way of reconciliation. Second, Second Corinthians 5.21 says, he became sin who knew no sin that we might receive the righteousness of God. See, what happened in, in, in the moment of the cross where Jesus took on sin, and for those that put their faith and trust in Jesus, we receive the perfect righteousness of Christ. So that we can now be reconciled to God. So now that when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin, but he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ on us. He says, I am the way. It's the way of reconciliation. But when he says that I am the truth, it speaks of revelation. 
it speaks of revelation. Jesus is the logos. He is the word. We read that in John chapter 1, verse 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is the truth. In fact, verse 9 again says, Whoever's seen me has seen the Father. We learn from God's word, from special revelation, which is God's word. You have general revelation, which you can, you can look at the sky and you can, you can see the glory of God, but it's through special revelation that we understand that, that God is a God of mercy and of grace. He's a God of forgiveness. He's a God of peace and joy and goodness. That he's a personal God, that he desires to have a relationship with us. We can see the glory of God by going out for a hike or going to the Grand Canyon. But we, we, we look into the truth for revelations about God. He says, I am the way, the, I am the truth. And then he says, I am the life. That speaks of regeneration. That speaks of regeneration. He gives us a new life. He frees us from the bondage of sin and he frees us from the law. He gives us new desires. He gives us new affections. For those that have been living under the law, all of a sudden, man, it's just like this weight must have just come up off of their shoulders. How often do, we, do people want us to live by certain rules and regulations? And that's slavery. Even in the church, that's slavery. But under grace, there's freedom. Let God work in us so he can work through us. Let's not take just a list of do's and don'ts and try to keep them. That's exhausting, and we're all going to fail that. But that's, what, that's why we have the gospel. And that the moments we fail, we confess our sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We have a new life in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Jesus gives us eternal life. No one else does. And that brings us to the exclusivity of the gospel. There is only one way. There is only one path. That's the narrow path. Jesus says, no one. No one comes to the Father except by me. You know what that says in the original Greek? No one comes to the Father except by me. There is no other way. There is only one way, and that is Jesus. In fact, in, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, it says, Enter by the narrow path, for wide is the path that leads to destruction. And many will go down it, but narrow is the path that leads to life. Few will find it. The fact that you're here sitting, listening to this message means that you're either on the narrow path or you're close to it. But you've got to take it. No one comes to the Father except by me. There is only one door, and that's Jesus. Let not your hearts be troubled. Why? 
because Jesus has made a way to God. He has prepared a place. He has a room. He's coming for you again. And that brings us to the sixth reason we can look to Jesus for comfort. He is with you now. Okay, look at verse 7 and 8. Jesus said, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know me and have seen him. You do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. Okay, Philip's not, still not connecting the dots. He might be thinking, yeah, now I'm not picking up what you're putting down. You know, maybe I'm struggling in my marriage or I'm lonely or I have serious health issues or I've got depression or anxiety. I've got a prodigal child or rebellious child. And he's like, just, just show us the father and it'll be enough. Philip wants tangible evidence. But that's precisely what he has been given over these last three years. You know, this is one of those times where you can just kind of hear the exasperation of Jesus. Look at verse 9. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and still do not know me? And you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen the Father, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Philip says, it'll be enough. Meaning, it'll be satisfactory, it'll be sufficient. Jesus says, listen, you were with me when I changed the water to wine. You were with me when I gave sight to the blind, when I fed the 5,000, when I calmed the sea, when I walked on water, when I raised Lazarus from the dead. I've told you over and over that I and the Father are one. How can you say, just show us the Father, it'll be enough. Six different times between verse 7 and verse 11. Jesus effectively says the same thing. See if you can pick up on the trend here. Verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Verse 9, have I been with you so long and you still not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. What's he trying to say here? Philip, get a clue pill. It's right there on the table. Pick it up, put it in your mouth. What Jesus is saying I am with you right now. I am in the Father and the Father is me. You have the presence of the Father with you because you have the presence of me with you. I will always be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. In fact, he's getting ready to say again, I'm going to leave you, but I will not leave you as orphans. In fact, drop down to verse 16, 17, and 18. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. Notice that that's capitalized. Who is he speaking about? The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. You will not be orphans. He will give you another helper to be with you for a week. What does that say? Forever. 
Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and be, will, will be in you. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. In fact, in verse 27, he says it again. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Then he says in verse 11, even if you don't believe my word, which you should, believe all the miracles. Look what he says. Believe, in, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. You've seen them. That's why I loved our baptisms a couple weeks ago. Every one of those baptisms, all 10 of them, were miracles. Every one of them represented a changed life. Somebody who was dead that came to life. Somebody that was in darkness that came into the light. Somebody that was at enmity with God now was at peace with God. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. Listen, if you are in Christ, God is with you right now. Jesus is the comfort for the troubled heart. He's trustworthy. He has a place for you. He has made preparation for you. He will return for you. He is the way to God. He is with you now. You need to believe that. Put your faith and trust in Christ. He's your strength. He's your hope. He's your peace. He's your light. As the worship team comes up, let me just ask this question. Is your heart troubled? Do you find yourself going through times of trouble, of trials, of stress? Do you need comfort? He is your comforter. Go to him. Receive his comfort. But most importantly, if you've never embraced him as Lord and Savior today... Let today be the day of salvation when you embrace him as Lord and Savior. I'm just going to ask you to bow your heads right now as we get ready to worship in response to God's word. Probably a good time to be honest with yourself and be honest with God. Has there been a time where you could say that I've, I've turned from my sin and self and I've turned to Jesus as Lord and Savior? Not that you might have grown up in a Christian home or gone to a Christian school or went to a church. But has there been a time where you've actually embraced Jesus as Lord? And if there's never been a time, maybe right now, and this is, there's nothing magical about this, but maybe you just repeat this prayer. Father, I confess that I'm a sinner and that I'm in need of a Savior. And I believe that Jesus prepared a way for me by dying a sacrificial substitutionary death on the cross. And I believe that he was raised on the third day. I confess Jesus as Lord and I confess him as Savior. Father, I pray if anybody has prayed that prayer that they would tell someone. Jesus says, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before the Father. 
Father, we thank you for the fact that you have made a way. You have prepared a way. You are our hope. You are our peace. You are our joy. You are the Christ of comfort. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.